Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we're talking to another producer. It's John Fryer. So here's the story. In the early 80s, John goes to work at Black Wing Studios in London. Now that studio is primarily being used by labels like 4AD and Mute. And so John becomes instrumental in creating the sound of artists that would go on to be very influential and huge, like Cocteau Twins, Depeche Mode, Yaz, Fad Gadget, Peter Murphy. These are all the bands that flow through John's resume. This Mortal Coil, that's why you're listening to Song of the Siren right here, one of the most beautiful songs ever recorded. He goes on to produce people like, he produced the debut Nine Inch Nails album, Pretty Hate Machine. That's huge. He produced Love and Rockets, So Alive, and Mars, Pump Up the Volume, all these classic alternative songs that if you listen to college radio or alternative radio in the 80s and 90s, we're all over the place. Nowadays, well, over the years, he's always had his own musical projects as well. His current one is called Black Needle Noise, and they are about to release a new album called These Mortal Covers... This week, in fact, tomorrow, and it's going to be released digitally. Now, there's when we did this interview just a few weeks ago, he didn't know that. We didn't know when this album was coming out, so he may allude to it coming out next year. But two singles have already come out. We talk about them in here, and the album will be released digitally starting tomorrow. These Mortal Covers, and I have a lot more instructions about that that I'm going to explain at the very end. So listen to the end of the podcast, my outro, because I will tell you more instructions on how to get your hands on these mortal covers, okay? So anyway, we hear stories about all of that. We hear stories about black needle noise. I will tell you my can't, my microphone cut off partway through this interview. I don't know why. So if the sound shifts, that's why. Anyway, John was great. We He called me from his home in LA. So, okay. I've been thinking there are so many things I want to talk to you about, and we'll get to black needle noise in a minute, but I want to know the whole story about song to the siren from this mortal coil. That's one of my favorite songs ever. That's uh, Elizabeth Fraser has one of the greatest singing voices ever. Yeah. Um, That song still, I've been listening to it over and over to get ready to talk to you. It, the punch is just as solid and as hard today as it was back then. Tell me everything you remember about the recording of Song to the Siren. Okay, so the whole thing about this mortal coil was 16 Days and Gathering Dust, I do believe it was, which was the Modern English songs. Mm-hmm. So I've approached Modern English because if, if my memory serves me right, it may not, I'm not sure. Um, they used to do the two songs together uh, live, hmm. like segue between, you know, between the two songs. 
if I remember correctly, and he wanted them to go in the studio and record it like that. And they said, no. Modern so English going, said no to recording Song to the Siren? No, 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 not Song to the Siren, 16 Days and Gathering Dust. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. Modern English songs. Yes. So um, they said no about doing the, you know, the segue, but, you know, joining the two songs together. So they said no. So then I said, okay, I'll do it myself. So that, that was the start of this mortal coil and song to the siren was the B side to that. So really? it was recorded as a B side. Okay. But it just had magic to it. You know, it did. Whose decision is it to make the song as stark? I know that that's a hallmark of yours, but who decides in that moment that the perfect arrangement for this song and Elizabeth voice, Elizabeth's voice is this tone, this sound? Is that you? Really, the Robin's guitar was just a guy guitar. Hmm. And then Liz did, you know, X amount of vocals, which you can hear in the background of her lead vocal. It just worked at a moment in time like that. Wow. Does she interpret that song completely herself and what we hear is how she feels it or do you guys talk about how you want to do it it's a bit of a combination of of both but yeah that's how she interpreted how she felt it yeah okay tell me what tell me what it's like working with liz and robin i've tried to get both of them on this show and robin almost did it a while ago and then i never heard back and liz is kind of she doesn't do a lot of interviews i I love her, and I think she has one of the most defining voices of the last 40 years. Did you and, go and see uh, Massive Attack? What's that? Did you go and see Massive Attack when she was singing with them? I did. It's interesting you say that. The one and only time I've ever been in the same room as her, uh, as I, again, as I mentioned, I've, I live in Denver, and Massive Attack came through here in concert yeah. about 10 years ago, and different vocalists came out, Horace Andy and Liz Fraser came out and performed their songs and then they would leave. And as soon as she walks out, I'm getting goosebumps now, just thinking about it. The whole room, it feels like royalty or, you know, some sacred being is suddenly floated into this, into your atmosphere. So yeah. is she like that in person? Is she just a regular person? What's she like? She seems really delicate. She is very delicate. She's very shy too. Yeah. You know, and it's like early, um, like early twin shows, you know, she was, um, you know, she'd sing a song and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to fuck up. I'm so sorry. You know, she's always uh, very apologetic. But yeah, I mean, she's a real sweetheart. Yeah. And you I, know, uh, when we was working, like making their, you know, Head Over Heels album, I mean, people don't, for some reason, don't think she sings in English or, or not real words. But right. you know, she would sit there with, you know, uh, encyclopedias and dictionaries and you know in the corner of him writing lyrics for days on end you know so okay so i have two stories about that number or, and questions number one i talked to tanya donnelly recently and she was talking i asked her similarly about what it's like working with liz and she was saying that she's actually very much the opposite she's very body she's got a you know rowdy sense of humor she can be tough if she wants to and so i thought that was a really interesting counter to the image that we have of Liz. Secondly, yes, that's the impression is that her, the band's lyrics are almost in like a coded secret language. You know, we don't know what she, for instance, on uh, Head Over Heels, Sugar Hiccup. 
Yeah. What in the world is a sugar hiccup? But that's probably the best song on that album. And they have millions of those songs like that, that yeah. sound like nonsense, but they're ethereal, gorgeous weirdness. But you're yeah. saying that there, there's a rhyme to this reason or a reason yeah. to this rhyme or whatever. She's, this is all thought out. Yes, exactly. Yes. But also it's the way she sings and bends the notes and bends the yeah. words, you know, where people get lost in that. And it's like, oh, that's not a real word, but it is a real word. It's just the way she <laughs> manipulates it with her voice, you know? Yeah. So let's yeah. talk about Head Over Heels for a second, because that was the, that was the album that really cemented their sound. And that's, you're a big part of that, you know? Garland's oh, had come out before and it was what it was, but you're yeah. the one who puts the shimmer on everything and decides that it needs to, where did you come up with that? It's in my DNA. It's just part of me. I can and that's see why, that. that's why, you know, that kind of sound has been with me for the, over the last four decades. Yeah. Into the fifth decade now. Yeah. 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 When you say that, like, do you and Robin come together and say, you know, I have an idea here. Does he, is he coming to you and saying, I want you to work your magic? You were so young in your career. Did you even know what your magic was at that point? It just happened naturally, you know? It was okay. just, it's, like, when I came to this, the studio, it was like a Dr. Water, you know? It just, it was just so natural and it just flowed out of me. Yeah. Out of me, you know? Yeah. Because they would, they would stick to and expand on that shimmery sound that you helped them create yeah. for the rest of their career. Yeah. Yeah. And I no one's ever sounded like them before or since. Not exactly. Well, apart from the bands that Robin produces, of course, because it's like you use my guitar sound or, you know, it's my way or the highway kind of. Good point. <laughs> you know, that's why Lush sounded like, you know, when he started working with them, that's why they had that you know, his guitar sound on there, right? Yeah. I was going to ask you about that specifically because they, they did sort of start that movement and Lush is another band that I love.
And um, I think I read somewhere, I think a quote of yours was saying something akin to what you just said, which is that they were, you created that sound that they then made their own, right? Yeah, it's, um, it was a funny thing because Ivo went to see Power Saints, mm-hmm. if I remember rightly, and Lush was supporting. And then he put them in the studio with me and said, you know, if this goes well, I'll sign them. If it goes badly, I won't. And it went well, and he signed them. And the rest is history. Good. I love them, too. Okay, one thing, uh, one more thing relating, I believe, to Cocteau Twins that I wanted to ask you about was I read somewhere about you and Robin were really into experimenting with sound, and you would run <laughs> cords, cables through. He, I, was it you or him that thought, I want to run this through a piano and yeah, see yeah. what kind of sounds emanate from yes, the piano? There was, yeah, there was a Yamaha electric piano there, yeah. So I plugged in his, it's either the, it could have been the guitar or the bass through there, yeah. Okay. I did a lot of strange things like that back in the Well, I, that's what I wanted to ask you about. I'm curious, what were some of, what were other weird but successful experiments like that? Anything else you can remember? Um, it's, it's like working with Fag Gadget. He had the song, The Box. wanted this kind of close claustrophobic sound and in the live room there was this big flight case so we actually put him in the flight in a box mm-hmm. to record the box <laughs> that's great so oh, we, that's you know great. if you listen to that you know we mic'd him up close the lid so he was singing inside this flight case you know yeah just inside the box for the box that's great so what you know it's Back then it was, um, you know, I still have the same approaches. Whatever it takes to get the sound you want, yeah. we would do, you know? Yeah. yeah. There's no, you know, I'm not one of these purist, snobbery people uh-huh. who say, oh, we can only use this and do this and do this, you know? It's like, it, yeah. it doesn't matter to me. When you say that, I, one of the other articles I was reading about you was how comfortable you feel in today's sort of remote production routine that is just you and your Mac and you like that are you able to find creative ways to be adventurous like that in this new music business well not as organic as it was then now it's more of a digital experimentation you know you know where you you know you stick six plugins together and see what comes out the other end you know yeah 
yeah. rather than sticking you know sticking six guitar pedals together and and messing with them so it's kind of the same approach but in the digital world you know? yeah you're tweaking a file as opposed to things physical things in an actual room yeah because back then we would just try and push the technology as far as possible you know mm-hmm. what were you know the, what limitations we had we would try and go past them yeah okay okay i have a fad gadget uh question for you but i'll ask it later so let's talk about black needle noise this is your latest project there are two singles out there the first i don't know what order they came in but the one that's out there that just is dropping is <laughs> is your version of what a wonderful world yes. louis armstrong yes. as only john fryer could do I want to know what sparked this whole project. Okay, so Black Needle Noise has been around since 2016. There's uh, how many? About 30 songs out there in the world, but most of it is original music. Okay. Okay, so the cover versions started. I, I signed the cover versions to, to be released via Cleopatra Records. So they're putting out the. So the covers album is going to be called These Mortal Covers. Nice, perfect. <laughs> um, perfect. Because basically, this Mortal Coil was all all covers apart from the instrumental stuff we did. So yeah. yeah so when my uh, my first band, Dark Drive Clinic, uh, we were playing a show, and Rebecca borrowed my shoes. Uh, when we were backstage, the, the floor was, you know, damp or whatever. So she just put my shoes on to walk across the room. And, uh, and it was just like, oh, why don't we do a, a cover version of the Pesh Mode walking in my shoes? I would 
Made my, it made sense to me at the time, you know? Sure. <laughs> so that's when the cover version started, but I've been asked for music licensing places to, you know, can you do a version of this and can you do a version of that? And so that's some of them. Others, I've just liked the songs and, and just done in, you know, in my way. In your way. That's perfectly said. When does this Mortal Covers album come out? In next year. Okay. okay. This is all down to uh, Cleopatra's schedule. That's the word. I'm Release thinking. schedule. Yeah. So the other cover I heard on there, I've heard from that is the uh, Black Crows. She talks to angels, yeah. which is one of my favorite Black Crows songs. Of course, you make that one your own too. She never mentions the word addiction. Certain company. Yeah, she tells you she's an orphan. After you meet her family, she says she talks. What goes into the decision about what you cover and how to do it? I think I was reading, maybe it was in the press release, I don't remember, that you wanted to approach What a Wonderful World as if you'd never heard the original. You just okay, that, was, that was Tom, the singer. Oh, okay. Because, because he, you know, he grew up, he's like, like me, he grew up with a song, you know? Of course. Everyone's grown up with a song. Yeah. And then it was when I sent in the music, he kind of was like, how the hell am I going to sing this to this? So he had to kind of erase the original and then just approach it in a whole, you know, yeah. in a way that suited the uh, kind of oppressively uplifting version I did. Uh -huh. Oppressively <laughs> uplifting. So then how do you approach it? Because it doesn't, I mean, it sounds totally industrial. When you go in there and you think, I'm going to reinvent What a Wonderful well, World, what, make, what do you think? I'm making it a wonderful world. <laughs> You're making it your wonderful world, right? Yeah. yeah. My wonderful well, world would include a song like this. Okay, so if you go on to uh, Black Needle Noise Bandcamp page and my bio about it, you know, it's like I'm making 
music for movies you haven't seen yet or haven't yeah. dreamt of yet. Right. These cover versions, a lot of them are very cinematic. So they're to, you know, hopefully will be picked up by a movie Anything. somewhere. Yes. Yeah, it belongs in like the next, I don't know what, some horror movie or whatever. It needs, these songs need to be played. Ironically, that would be perfect. Yeah. yeah I love well, it. Okay. It, look, it depends how you look at things, you know. It's like the first Black Needle Noise album was before the tears came. And people are like, oh, why is it so sad? I said, why can't it be happy tears? <laughs> you know, true. it's like you're, you're laughing and you're crying at the same time. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. why can't, you know, before the tears came be a happy expression? Why do you think it's a sad expression? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And that's, I think, you know, it's interesting when you say that because that sort of explains and summarizes your thumbprint on a lot of the music that you made, especially during the 80s is going back to the Cocteau's or whoever, this gorgeous emotional reaction to what you're hearing. And it's both, it gives you the chills, but it also is so beautiful, it's depressing. I don't know how else to, it, it just touches all the feelings, you know? Well, that's what I try to achieve when, it's like when I write music, when I make music, when I mix music, is try to, when you listen to it, you should get feelings from it. Yeah. Where, you know, and it should, and, I mean, it's like all the Black Needle Noise stuff. If you close your eyes, each song should be its own mini movie and it, it will take you a totally different space, mm-hmm. which is what I'm trying to create. It's just trying to create emotions and feelings within, within the sound. Yeah. You know, sound, sound can move you. Yeah, I agree. That's what I've tried to do. Okay. Let me ask you if, about, I read this somewhere and then I also saw you quote it back in an, in an article somewhere about back in the early days when you were an engineer and a mixer, bands would come in and you would be so kind of opinionated and demonstrative that they would end up coming back to you because you were it's like, well, this guy is speaking up. I want to know exactly what John is thinking because he doesn't hold back. Is that what kind of a person you are or is that a fake reputation? No, that, um, what did Daniel Miller said? I was, I was surly. Uh, I think that's <laughs> really? Used, and, uh, yeah. So yeah, I had, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's all you're going to say about that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's like, you know, sometimes it was, uh, detrimental, but sometimes it worked. And, but, that, but that's the thing, you know, when I started, you know, I, the first year I was like an assistant engineer. Then it's like the second year I was kind of uh, engineer. Like third year I was co-producing. You know, uh-huh. people like working with me and and liked, you know, my approach and the sound they got. And you know, then then they would come back. Can you think of a time? Give us an example of an artist or a song or whatever that illustrates this this uh, you know definition of you. Well, it's it's but also when I work on on other bands music i try to make their records mm. you know that's why they all sound different they don't all sound like i mean they, obviously there's elements of elements of me in them mm-hmm. but they all sound unique to the band mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was funny i remember in i was in england and stabbing westwood had just been played on the radio and I, a friend called me up and said oh i just heard this amazing band on the radio it sounds like a record you should have made and it's like I did make it. I did make that record. <laughs> yeah. 
Shame. Shame is such a great song. I remember when that one hit hard. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. I'm imagining something like Stabbing Westward and those kind of acts that you were working on in the early 90s, they were probably a, very much a direct response to the work you did with Nine Inch Nails on Pretty Hate no. Machine, right? Oh, no. 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 It was really? To, it was to do with the 4AD music. Well, okay, they, yes. They wanted to incorporate the more ethereal sound into the more industrial sound. Mm. But then Nine Inch Nails loved, actually really liked He Said, from, you know, which I did from Mute. Mm. He, wanted to, he wanted to get signed to Mute. So you know, that's why I was brought in you know, for the electronic side. But Stabbing Westwood was more the more ethereal side. Got it. Right. Interesting. Incorporate you know, the, the keyboard sounds into the more industrial sound. Yeah. So let's, I mean, we got a, a pretty hate machine. I don't know. That might be the most seminal album that you worked on, at least commercially. What, tell us about working with, with Trent. He's brand new. What is he looking for? How do you work with him? How do you help him find this sound? Why are you laughing? Do I have to talk about this one? Oh, come on. This is the one you get asked about a lot, right? It, it was the bane of my life. It was a what I had to bear that fucking record. Why? It, it's because it's like that record actually it took about two years for well, actually because of Lollapalooza when it's on there, it broke. But I'll be working with another band and I'll be doing an interview like this. It's like, okay, so you're working with blah, blah. And uh, what was it like working with Trent? It's like, <laughs> are you tired of talking about trent <laughs> yeah he's nodding his head folks okay well i got a whole list here that's just one you know Good. we've got other things Good. get get to other things yeah <laughs> okay okay no i just tell you one story about that record so yeah we finished the record and steve gottlieb came back to listen so we did the playback in the studio steve gottlieb sat in the back of the room we did the playback and his mouth just dropped open and said, you have ruined this record. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because he, he wanted more like erasure, you know, mm -hmm. he wanted it more like that. And then what did, when, did Trevor want that though? Tre Trevor. I can't see Trevor, Trevor, Trent. Trevor I can't see Tre <laughs> that would be great. I can't see Trent becoming another erasure. That can't he, be what he wants. Earlier stuff was more like that, you know? Really? Yeah. Okay. 
so yeah, so that was the funny story of Mr. Gottlieb. We just you know, <laughs> ruined this record, and, you know, and then the rest is history, I guess. You friarized it, is what it sounds like. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with kind of a deeper cut here. Okay. One of my favorite albums is Chapter House's Whirlpool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You worked on that. And, and I should I should apologize now. I never know in these exactly whether you're the producer, the engineer, or the mixer. Maybe all three, okay. maybe just one. I don't know. Okay. When I work in the studio, I do everything myself. So it's okay. like you know, I set up the studio, you know, put the mics in place, I engineer the record, I produce a record, I mix the record, you know, I can I program the records. It's like I I'm kind of I do everything. Okay. And then, if I remember correctly, Gil Norton did half that record, which I engineered for him on that record. Then I, I think he did half of it, and I then I did the other half, if I remember okay. correctly. Okay. But but he's one of these producers who doesn't touch the mixing desk or anything. You know, he sits oh. there with his notebook and says, "Oh, can you do this? Can you do that?" Okay. okay. Where I am totally hands-on and do everything myself. So okay, so I love that record. I have a very deeply nerdy question for you. Okay. So this one, <laughs> I, you, I can see you laughing at me. Um, so one of the bigger songs, bigger-ish off, songs off that album was Pearl. Uh-huh. And near the end, it goes into that, um, I don't even know what to call it. It sounds like a, it's a sample of beats. The same exact sound is used in Susie and the Banshees' Kiss Them For Me. And I wondered if- Did they copy us? That's my question. Who did it first? Because both those songs, I think, came out in 1991. So I, and they're so, spe- no, they're so exact. Would, that would have been earlier. 
That would have been, because uh, if I'm working at Blackwing, that would have been the 80s. Well, Whirlpool, I don't know. Whirlpool maybe came out 90. And maybe Kiss Them For Me came out 91. So I'm wondering who sampled who, if assuming somebody sampled somebody. You think Susie sampled you? Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay. But, but Budgie is a super nice guy. I sat Budgie's down the best. talked to him for like an hour after uh, one of the creature shows. Okay. I love Budgie. He's in the hospital. And really? I, I follow him on social media and he just posted a picture of himself in the hospital. I think he had like open heart surgery. Wow. Yeah. And the doctor ended up being a fan, but the doctor didn't realize that he was working on Budgie. And so he brought his, he ended up bringing his Susie albums in and Budgie side. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, this just happened this week, I think. Wow. Okay. Hey, I'm just going to operate you. Before you go under, can you sign this for me? Yeah, that's what, it, <laughs> that's what I'm imagining, you know? Yeah. I yeah. promise to do an even better job if you give me an autograph on this record. Um, okay, yeah, your, so heart, I, your heart skipped a beat and lucky you didn't when you were playing drums, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, do you have any memories then of making Whirlpool? I love this album. It's another one of those, you know, it happened. Okay. It's like the 80s, you know, it was, it was, it was just crammed full. You know, it's like in the, the 10 years I worked at Blackwing, I had five days off sick. You know, it's like, as I was explaining yesterday, it's like, it's not a job you can put off till tomorrow. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not an office job. It's like, oh, I'll do the paperwork tomorrow. It's like the band was booked in for, you know, three days to make an album or, the, you know, or, it was booked, or they were booked in for five days to make an album. You had to be there to make the album or, you know, to record them because there was no other time. And a good third of that time is probably spent doing drugs, right? No. 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 I can't. For me, it's like it, like a, a couple of sips of alcohol or anything. Um, my ears go. I can't. Oh, really? Yeah. Now afterwards, party time. But while you're working, straight well, then up. I'd be working all night anyway. So. <laughs> That's true. Okay. okay. And a lot of it back then too was, you know, it was like fourteen to eighteen hour days. You know, if, if I worked under 12 hours, it didn't feel like I'd done a day's work. You know? I could see that. So, you know, the, normally the band was booked in for 12 hours and you, you know, you just go till it's finished. So didn't it. you stumble into producing in the first place? What's the story of how you got into Blackwing yes. in the first place? It's my, I was working, I was there with my friends. They went in to do some demos and then Eric was looking for an assistant and I had just been made unemployed. So I went to him and said, hey, you need someone to work here. I need a job. And he said, okay, start now. And then I left 10 years later. Oh, my gosh. And you found your signature style and sound while you're there. It was perfect. I can't – were you working for 4 AD or were you just the guy they went to a lot? No, the, the funny thing about it is Daniel Miller discovered the studio. Hmm. And he really liked the studio – you know, all the big independents knew each other back in the day. So he told Jeff Travis at Rough Trade, you know, he told Martin Mills at Vegas Banquet, uh, Ivo at 4AD. So then they all, I, I don't think, or maybe Blancmange was about the only band signed to a major. Everything else was all hmm. indie labels. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he really did any major label stuff. Okay. 
okay. So I'm saving Depeche Mode for a little bit later because I obviously have a lot of questions about that. But I want to talk about Peter Murphy real quick. <laughs> yes, go on. <laughs> okay. I love Peter Murphy. You worked on his first album. Mm-hmm. I have a very specific question about this. So there's a song on the album. The answer is clear. This song, I, maybe you have a memory of this, maybe you don't. So my the story I read is that Bauhaus breaks up, Daniel yeah. Ash starts Tones on Tail, and his album, the Tones on Tail band, puts out a song called Movement of Fear. So Tones on Tail have a song called Movement of Fear that P- Peter Murphy perceives to be about him. And okay. so he writes a response song called The Answer is Clear, about his feelings about Bauhaus. What's interesting is that Daniel Ash, who plays guitar in Bauhaus and Tones on Tail, yeah. comes in and plays so- guitar on the song that is supposedly the song re- that's responding to this brouhaha. The song about him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> who thought of this? How did it happen? How, how did Daniel agree to this? Tell me. And he probably didn't know but you know it's like like, okay Bauhaus are back together but there's been a lot of internal struggles between you know the members it's like it's like almost 60 to 70 percent of bands I work with don't actually get along so you know there's a lot of infighting with you know with a lot of bands and you know that came out with Bauhaus and then you know, it's been going on for a long time. You know, the thing about the books they've written about each other and and blah, blah, blah. So it, it happens to a lot of bands. You know, I was watching a documentary about Pink Floyd and it got so bad between them that, you know, one of them was saying, well, you know, he had the red spotlight for 10 seconds more than I had the red spotlight. And it was, you know, it just gets, you know, yeah. bands going on tour and they each have their own limousine each. It can't be in yeah. the tour bus together. It happens. Who, if you can answer this, what band that we would know got along the worst and what band that we would know got along the best? Probably one of the worst was Renegade Soundwave, probably. Really? You worked with them? Yeah. Did you do Biting My Nails? 
it was not an easy time because they couldn't be in the same room together. One day recording with one of them and the next day the other guy would come in and say, this is total fucking shit. Erase that and just start again, you know? So difficult times. So speaking of people, whether they get along or not, one of our listeners sent in a couple of questions that he specifically wanted me to ask you. And one of them relates back to people getting along. While you were working on Upstairs at Eric's with Yaz. Okay, uh, that's okay. I only really worked on one song. Oh, which one? Which was the hit single, I do believe. Don't Go? Yes. Okay, so the situation there was um, Depeche Mode came in with Daniel Miller, they made the first album, and then Vince left, and um, Martin Gore took over the songwriting for Depeche Mode. But they still, like Daniel still wanted to use the studio, and Depeche wanted to use the studio, and Vince wanted to use the studio. So I ended up working with Depeche and Eric worked with uh, Vince. What was that like having, I didn't connect, I didn't do the math until getting ready to talk to you that Depeche would have been there working on Broken Frame at the same time as Vince being there working on Upstairs at Eric's, correct? Well, okay, so why it's called Upstairs at Eric's is because right. Eric built the studio in his house to, so we could keep them separate. <laughs> Specifically for that reason? It, we, well, the studio was booked too, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if everyone knows that, but that's why that album's called Upstairs at Eric's. So there's... Why it's called Upstairs at Eric's, I don't know, because the studio was on the ground floor. So why it's called Upstairs, I do not know. <laughs> okay. So the question from one of my listeners is, Allison and Vince yeah. never really connected that much? And so were they ever, were you there? Did you ever witness them being in the room at the same time or anything like that? Well, some of the time when they were recording, I was like Alison's chaperone and Eric and Vince were in the control room 
giggling like two little schoolgirls and oh. with chaperone in uh, Allison. So we became very good friends. You and Allison. Okay. Yeah. Was there, was it frosty, the relationship between the two? Were they at least nice to each other or warm or no? Yeah. They were? Okay. Other my other question from the same listener about Depeche Mode. Uh, I'm just going to read this straight. Early on, you worked with Fad Gadget uh, yeah. and Depeche Mode. It's yeah. pretty well known that Fad Gadget was an early influence on Depeche. Yes. What was the relationship between the two acts? Mutual respect, teacher-student. Did Depeche Mode ever influence Fad Gadget? And as you worked on Speak and Spell, did you ever get a sense that Depeche Mode would grow into the huge global act they became? Well, Speak and Spell, as I say, because uh, no, Speak and Spell was the first album, mm -hmm. which was mainly written by Vince. basically wanted to become ABBA. He just wanted to be write pop songs, you know? Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I'm not 100% sure why, but he decided he had taken Depeche Mode as far as he wanted to take it. So he left. And then the, um, and they say then Martin um, took over the writing responsibility. So that was, you know, broke, a broken frame was like his first real foray into writing songs and then mm -hmm. you know, he just got better and better he did did you see though the like the seeds or the kernels of where Depeche Mode and Martin specifically as a songwriter would go in those early sessions well he kind of had a change when he went to Berlin for a while and then he came back kind of a different character mm -hmm. but then see I didn't really work with them after that mm. They went uh, other places and worked with other people. Yeah, yeah. I was reading somewhere that um, in those early days, Vince was the only one who didn't have a job, a day job. So he would come in at all hours just to work in the studio, but the other guys would have to come in after their day jobs. Do you remember what like David Gahan's or Martin Gore's day job was at the time? I don't think, I don't think when they signed the only one is like Andy worked in a bank, if I remember correctly. Oh, okay. The other, okay. the other two, I don't 
think they had Judd's. Okay. I read somewhere that they did, and I was imagining Martin Gore like in a chip shop, you know, and he's, <laughs> yeah, I, I got to go, guys. And he, you know, he fold, takes his ro- his apron off and folds it up. I got to go to the studio over at Blackwing and record my synth parts or whatever, you know, <laughs> just imagining something so like if that. I, if I remember right, they were, uh, you know, they were there all the time together. Yeah. It wasn't really okay. later because a lot of, you know, that first album was recorded on eight track. Mm. You know, it was part, you know, they played live. Yeah. That was back yeah. in the day when Andy could actually play something. <laughs> um, that's yes, I've seen him eating a banana on stage live. Amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's always some question about what Andy's doing exactly up there. Um, well, here's the peacemaker between uh, mm. Martin and Dave. I could see that. Yeah, yeah. That's the role he plays, I think, is yeah. to kind of keep keep things. He's like the glue guy. Okay, I want to talk to you about one of your other out of nowhere big commercial hits, and that's Love and Rockets So Alive. top 40. Now, I should admit, going in, I feel bad saying this, I've never been that big of a Love and Rockets fan. Okay. I'm like a Greatest Hits fan. I'm not, I don't go too much beyond that. But I do love that song. And it was such an outlier compared to everything they did, such an outlier compared to everything else on the radio at the time. What do you remember well, about making that? Okay. So the thing with that, we made the album and the record company turned around and said, there's no hit songs on them, on the record. And so they came back in the studio and I basically, well, I produced it and got them to write that song and make that song. So they made that song with the intention of it being the hit from the album and getting played on a radio. Yeah. Wow. You know, that makes a lot of sense. It sounds like that kind of song coming from them. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. And if I remember, if I remember correctly, it was Prince and Madonna were one and two. I'm not 
sure which way round it was, and Love and Rockets got to number three. Wow. So if it wasn't for those other two, uh -huh. we would have had a number one. Yeah, in the States, no less. Yeah. I mean, they were strictly college and alternative radio, before and after. Well, the thing is with Love and Rockets, they were bigger here in the, in the States than anywhere else, really. Were they really? Okay, okay. They yeah, didn't they do were so beloved. Much. They didn't do so much in England. Oh, I don't know if I knew that. They were beloved on alternative radio, things like No yeah. New Tale to Tell and All yeah. Confusion and stuff. But as far as pop radio, So Alive was the only thing. Now, okay, so we touch on the business side of things very sensitively on here. You've done so much, but a lot of it was with indie bands. We talked about Nine Inch Nails. We talked about So Alive. Do you still to this day get a little piece of these things? Do you get a point or two on those songs at all? On um, some of the early stuff, yeah. Okay, the early Depeche Mode. Well, Thankfully, they got gigantic. No, not, so. not Depeche Mode, no, because I was just an engineer there. Okay. So it's only, you know, only if you're a producer, you get points. Okay, okay. Yeah. What, so uh, on, like on the hymn, hymn record, Razor Blade Romance. And, hymn, that's right. They're a band I don't know that much about. I've seen their albums, the CDs yeah. in the yeah. store, but I don't know that much about them. Um, well, that's been in Hot Topic. Yeah. It's, Where you do all your shopping, of course. I, all of it. Yeah. I go to Hot Topic a lot. Okay. Well, then I'm just going to ask you point blank. And you t you don't have to answer. If this is too sensitive, we'll cut it out. When you get like a royalty statement, what's the top earner in your mailbox money? I mean, that it's dwindled down so much now. I'm sure it has. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, that's what I was talking to someone about the internet the other day. It's like, it's, it's kind of... It's good because now I can work with anyone around the world remotely. So that side of it's good, but for actual, you know, sales, it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, but that's the thing, you know, there's always been taping, you know, from, you know, when you had the reel to reel and people making uh, cassettes, you know, for people. But the thing is back then, someone actually had to physically buy the records mm -hmm. and then they could make you a cassette mm -hmm. with the internet. It takes one person, they upload it, and everyone around the world can get it for free. Mm -hmm. That's the big difference. Yeah, yeah. It's sad. The, uh, the businesses, I knew it growing up. Legends like you knew it. It's over. I don't know how people monetize. I, I've said this to, I've had so many producers, thankfully, on the show. They're some of my favorite guests. But my reaction is almost always the same. I feel bad for you guys because an artist can continue to at least go out on tour, not during COVID times, but you know, normal times. They yeah. go out on tour, they can pedal out their songs. You guys who help made, make those songs, make them hits, make them sound the way they can, don't have that luxury, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, but another thing that people don't realize is back in the 80s is when computer games started coming out. Mm-hmm. And what they did is a computer game would be like 40 bucks mm -hmm. and an album would be say 10 bucks. Mm -hmm. So what happened is, you know, people of the day, they would save their money to buy a computer game, which would mean four album sales lost. Mm -hmm. So even from the eighties, the, you know, the computer game industry has been, you know, eating away at the record industry. Yeah. And a lot they of people don't realize that. No. It's a, it's a constant competition for people's uh, disposable income and disposable time. 
Yeah. And these, and it gets harder and harder. Now, back then it was, uh, you know, video game, video games were coming in as a competition. Now it's yeah. Netflix. Now it's live acts. Now it's their phones. Now it's TikTok. There's a but, you know, other but things. It's just like, you know, say to people, it's like, why? Okay. A coffee costs you six bucks, right? Which is gone in five, 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. You could buy six songs, which you can yeah. keep forever. Yeah. Yeah, I've never understood coffee. that either. I know. So I'm going to go and buy a coffee. So you... Okay. Yeah. That's I know. What... And you could be supporting an artist and everything. Yeah. It drives me crazy. You should um, support artists while they're still alive. Yeah. Agreed. Especially now more than ever. Buy some merch or something. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I have another. And do if you go to blackneedlenoise.com. <laughs> there you go. There you go. The link to Black Needle Noise will be in the description of the show. Hopefully, people. This is my infomercial here. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay. I have, as I mentioned, kind of a deeply nerdy, bad gadget question for you. I don't know if you'll even remember this. Okay, maybe. On the first album, there is a song called Salt Lake City Sunday. I am from Salt Lake City. Yeah, it is a. Uh, it's him complaining about Mormons. I grew up Mormon. I wondered what you remember of the creation of that song. Did he have a bad experience? Was he mad at Mormons? What's the deal? I, to be honest with you, I don't know. But Frank was quite political. If you listen, if you look at all his lyrics, they're all quite political. They're all saying something. You know, it's like Fireside Favorite was about you know the nuclear bomb and you know melting. You know from the explosion so all these all these songs were had a had a political overtone to them yeah or hidden in them more you know but yeah. you know it's um i don't know why he okay picked on it's that. probably just general religious oppression and he chose to kind of direct that song specifically at mormons or maybe he went through salt lake city in concert on a weekend and I had a bad experience i don't know to that oh back then maybe okay. just England I'm not sure I'm not sure you know he he had his um, agenda with his lyrics sure. you know to be honest a lot of time I don't really pay attention to lyrics mm. I don't either actually I'm not a big lyric guy but of course that one Salt Lake City Sunday and I'm from Salt Lake City and here's Fad Gadget of all people you know or of all bands talking about my hometown that yeah. uh, I wanted to know what the story was 
Okay. Let's talk about Mars and pump up the volume. <laughs> what did you do on that? I was an engineer on that. On the original, so and uh, supplied um, like the bass sound and the piano sound and really, yeah. What? Tell me about that project. Who is it? Whose idea was it? Okay, so Martin and Stephen from Colorbox. Right. Okay. So Martin, Martin M and Steve S. They're the M and S in Mars. Yeah. yeah, so they kind of came. Colorbox did not get the attention it deserved mm -hmm. for some reason, and they got very disillusioned. So um, Ivo came up with this plan to put Martin and Steven in the studio with AR Kane, you know, to try and create something. Mm -hmm. And what it ended up is that Mars was kind of more Martian and then you know his side and then the other side of the EP was more AR Kane side of things. Mm. <laughs> I think I speak for a lot of people. Could anyone on earth other than a small group of people name one other Mars song besides Pump Up the Volume? My guess is no. There isn't one is there? I don't <laughs> that's the only one I know. Right. But as far as I know, that was that was the beginning and the end of that project. Okay. When you said, I didn't even know there was an EP. So when you were saying splitting it up, I'm thinking, or, a, or a single, you know, two sides. Okay. 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 I'm thinking, are there other Mars songs out there somewhere? I don't. I've never heard them. Okay. Okay. No. That was it. Was a one-off. 
controversial record because you know there was a lot of sampling on that record there was a lot yeah. of you know school ed and people like this eric uh, b and rakim yep yeah and the thing is it, when it was released it was released just as a white label mm -hmm. so most people thought it it, it would come it had come from detroit hmm. you know it was right no one no one knew anything about it it was just it was supplied to djs in clubs that they were playing and it's like what is this record where did it mm -hmm. come from? you know uh, but the unfortunate thing is those assholes stock egg and waterman sued over their roadblock sample oh and then everyone sued because of the sampling but what people don't realize is they did a song afterwards with blue mercedes which had the exact same baseline. Really? Yeah. They, and to me, they ruined the whole music industry with their, you know, conveyor belt factory, you know, yeah. sounding the same music that they did with Kylie Minogue and whoever else. Rick Astley, Dead or Alive. Yeah. yeah. Well, not so much Dead or Alive, but, you know, the other- The one song. Stuff. Yeah, the conveyor yeah. belt stuff, which is- Yeah. You know, there's there's even a song, Rich Actley song, and a, Kylie Minogue, some exactly the same music. They just mm -hmm. sing different things over the top. So it's, yeah. And that formula, to me, killed the music industry. You know, I've heard good, and I've had people on here who I've worked with them, and I've heard both good and bad things. It definitely, I've never thought of it like that before, but it definitely sort of minimized the creativity and the adventurousness that producers like you and others were doing, because it was, taking all your grand ideas and interesting and experimentation and cutting all of it out and just keeping the synthy catchy part and making that all that there needs to be and it becomes commercial but, but that's to say to me it was just like conveyor belt music yeah know? yeah you're right we just take a little bit of this a little bit of that just slap that together and then you know off, off yeah. you go like, yeah that's it okay i want to ask you about one more kind of bigger album you worked on that's jesus jones's doubt album yeah I love them. I've had Mike Edwards on here. I saw them in concert back in the day during when that album came out. That was their huge, well, one and only, unfortunately, huge breakthrough in America. Yeah. Did you know when you were working on this, were there big commercial aspirations being attached to it as it's being created? Well, they were, you know, right here, right now, pop songs. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Real, real, real international, international bright young, young thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. It was, I mean, they're just pop songs.
It's like the Sex Pistols, they're all pop songs, you know? It's just they have a different sound to them. Well, and they touch on, those are pop songs, but here's where I think you come in, because I always lumped Jesus Jones and EMF together with Unbelievable, because I saw them in concert like within uh-huh. two weeks of each other. And those songs are great songs, and they're, they are pop songs, but what makes them timely and big is the style that they can mesh so well with the style of the time. And that's yeah. when you put, come in, right? So you apply your magic pixie dust on these pop songs and elevates them and makes them big. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, why I was asking, I, I mean, about Jesus Jones specifically. I, I mean, have a horrible do? story about that because it was for food records and uh, Dave Ralph ran food records because I asked for, you know, a percentage for mixing that record and he refused and said, no, you're only getting a fee. And then, you know, once it was huge, he came back to me and said, you know, if you'd had a point on that, you'd had a hundred thousand dollars by now. <laughs> you asshole. What a punk. No, <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh man. So you didn't get, you just got a fee on doubt. Yeah. Because I was just mixing it. Yeah. Oh shoot. That had to have gone platinum. You know, I don't know. It's I don't know what's old, or you'd have to look into. Oh, I bought it. I know that. Okay. Well, I think. I mean, there's a few other scattered things around here. Let me ask you one other thing. One other song. Just you one? did a really. What's that? Just one. I don't know. I may think of more. I have more. We'll see. You did a really interesting, interesting remix that sounds exactly like you to Sarah McLaughlin's Possession. that song i love uh, i still think it's one of the sexiest songs ever you made it yours did she ask you specifically to make that do that remix okay so i worked with a band called moev on that one so i produced i produced an album for them and sarah was a young i think she was 19 when we made and she came in and did backing vocals on that album And then later I was asked um, if I would do a remix for uh, that track, okay. which, he really, which he loved apparently. You know, I didn't know about that song. Well, I, I, I've heard it before back in the day, but I didn't piece together that you did it until getting ready to talk to you. 
And I was imagining, I could see Sarah being really jazzed about that because I bet she grew up listening to a lot of 4AB and and loving people like Liz and um, wanting that kind of a sound. Maybe not for her whole career or even that album, maybe that wasn't the most commercial thing, but to have you, a guy like you, with your pedigree come in and remix something of hers, I bet that meant a lot to her. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully it did. I bet it did. I would think you two would work well together that way. Yes, I'd like to work with that again. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, before we get out of here, I'm curious. I've, I mean, I've thrown at you 12 or 15 things that really matter to me. Is there a story that is one of your favorites to tell? Is there, you know, when, when you look back on this career of yours, what's a highlight for you? What's the story you dine out on? I mean, there's, it's really funny because there's lots of highlights, you know. It's like it's, when I work on something, I, you know, put like a 150% of me into making the record. Mm -hmm. But the thing is with all those records, they're other people's records. See, mm -hmm. for me now, the highlight is doing things, you know, like doing black needle noise. Mm -hmm. You know, I also, you know, I had Dark Drive Clinic and Silver Ghost Humor, Marissa Day, and now the black needle noise. So it's, yeah. you know, these mean more to me because I'm writing them. Sure. And I would really love to get a platinum disc for my own music, you know, would mean sure. more to me. Actually I, actually, I sold almost all my other gold, silver, platinum discs. It's because I, I had them sitting in a box and it's, I would yeah. rather the fans have them than they sit in a box in the mm -hmm. corner of my house. Yeah, yeah. Because um, so, they mean more to other people than, you know, I, I want now, I would like them for my own music. Yeah. I could see that. Do you, was the, I mean, you mentioned starting out very early on in your own band, needing a job, getting hired on at Blackwing, and then becoming a producer. Along the way, over the last 40 years, other than the last however many you've done your own thing, was the intention always to get back to being your own musician and making your own music and you were just so busy producing? Yeah, but that was the thing. I was too busy doing, it's like the Dark Drive Clinic album took me 25 years to finish. Oh, goodness. I started writing that in the eighties <laughs> and, you know, I'd just be too busy to work on it. And plus, you know, times have changed, equipment's changed, styles of music has changed. So, you know, I, I, I would write the song or, or, you know, work on a song, come back to it six months later, do something on it, you know, come back to it six months later, you know, then you have to update it again. And, you know, yeah. but then, but then also, uh, I was looking for a singer. Oh, um, yeah, and Rebecca uh, contacted me, and it worked. Now, again, I haven't heard every song, but don't you have different singers for each song? Because like Tom Berger sings, and I didn't know who that was, but he sounded great. He sounded just like he belongs in all these other bands we've just been talking about. Who's Tom, and how did he get involved in What a Wonderful World? I've known Tom since the 90s. Mm. I worked on a record with him back then and we just became friends and been friends ever since. Good, okay. He sounds uh, great. Yeah, he's got his own, he's got his new band, Johnny Tupolov, which uh, I just mixed a song for him and they're gonna be doing a video for that and then we'll be working on the uh, album. Great, okay. Um, what about you personally? I mean, are you married? Do you have kids? You live in LA somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, my wife is here sleeping on the couch next to me. Okay. Well, um, thanks for talking with me, John. I, if you can't tell so much of what you've done in your life has had a huge impact on me. But, you know, that's what, you know, people will say it's like, you, you know, you've soundtracked uh, whole life because of mm. the music that you've worked on. And, you know, it's just, it's like when I write stuff now, as long as I can get, as long as one person likes it, mm-hmm. I've done a great job. But, you know, fortunately, a lot more people like, yeah. Yeah. like it. So, you know. Oh, I, I thought of one more question for you. Um, is there somebody that you didn't work with, and I like to ask this of producers, is there somebody mm-hmm. you didn't work with that you wish you would have, that you think you could have really brought something special to what they were doing? That guy behind you. Uh, Bowie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What specifically? What would you have done? What would, would you just, have liked to have done? I would just like to have worked with him, been in the same room with him, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's just a... Uh, um, amazing his whole career you know how he reinvented himself and you know keep morphing the music into different areas do you have a favorite bowie album it's like i liked his uh, earlier stuff then i kind of lost interest a bit and then came back again later you know but it, it's really funny that before i started working in music i you know, I would, I was one of those people, you know, you'd buy the album, you'd read the, you know, the cover from back to front, you knew exactly what, who was doing what. And then when I started working in there, let's say like the eighties, I was so busy all the time. It's you kind of, and that's the one real thing I miss now about working with bands is getting to know about new music and different kinds of music, because each band that I'd work with, there'd be, you know, say five people in the band, they're all kind of listening to five different things and they would introduce you to different styles of music, different kinds of music. Yeah. Now, because, you know, I mainly work remotely, that interaction's gone. Yeah. What about, um, you know, they weren't four, right? four AD artists, but what about someone like, um, you know, Human League or Heaven 17 or, I mean, they were, you know, big time synth artists. They were popular than what you were working on, but did they ever pass through your orbit at all where there talks about ever working with them no it's like a lot of our the labels were based in london you know, the the studios in london the labels were based in london you know it's like factory up in manchester you know they used to use studios up in manchester and mm-hmm. so it's kind of easier to be in the you know the town that's true people. yeah i you may have that's true i because new order was another one that i was thinking yeah. of that like it would have been, I wonder what you would have done with New Order, but I guess if they're not in your town and they're getting everything they need from the factory setting in their town, they probably don't need to travel to you, right? Yeah, you know, just thinking about it, that's, you know, there's a lot of the, you know, the city, the label is in, they would have mm-hmm. deals with studios around them because they would be using them all the time, so. Well, so, okay, so let, let me ask you this then. With all of these different projects, what are you doing that's unique in Black Needle, needle Noise? What itch is this scratching for you? You know, what's your approach? How's it different? It's what, I, what I'm doing there is like, I, as I write the music and then I, I get different singers to sing upon them, on mm-hmm. the songs. I only use the singer for two songs. Mm. No, one or two songs, because I don't want it to become a burden 
on them. You know, they have their own musical careers going on and either they participate in the promotion or they don't. Some singers are more proactive than others. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason why it started is because I did Dark Drive Clinic and I did Silver Ghost Shimmer and, and both of those projects for reasons uh, the singers had that they didn't want to continue anymore. So we did Dark Drive Clinic and then Rebecca uh, couldn't continue anymore with it. So that ended. So it's like you spend all this time building it up and then it kind of, and I didn't want it to continue with another singer. Right. Using the same name and then another, you know, so that was that project. And then Silver Go Shimmer was with Pinky. And then for her own reason, she couldn't continue anymore. So um, that went by the wayside. But also when you, when you have a band per se, you have this kind of box that the sound has to fit into, you know, to keep it kind of uniformed. With Black Needle Noise, it's not a band. Well, actually we do play live. You can go to the, really? you can go to the website and see the little documentary we made about the first two shows. Oh, nice. Okay. And a friend of ours, Rod in Chile has been uh, sending out to film festivals and it's got a great response. We haven't won anything at the film festivals, but it's, it's, it's been close to winning. Good. And our friend Catherine uh, edited it, filmed it. And so that was, that was fun. I would imagine there is still a diehard devoted fan base for, uh, you know, goth tinged synth pop that you do. All those young people like me that grew up, you know, you're there with your black fingernails and your tattoos and stuff like that. You're in your sixties. There's probably tons of people my age that would love to go out and still see bands like yours and hear that music. We did a world tour of Hollywood. Did you really? A world tour of Hollywood? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did uh, three shows to promote the second vinyl, which was fun. So Betty, Betty X sings with us and uh, Anja, my wife sings, Sean plays drums and I play guitar. Okay. Guitar, really? Were you always a guitar player? No, I've just adapted uh, my style of playing. Mm -hmm. You know, under normal circumstances, when we're not all under COVID and all that kind of stuff, what do you think you'll do? Are you going to, like, for instance, I saw a clan of Zymox a couple of years ago, and I know you worked with them closely with them. Yeah. I could see you and bands like them going on like a package tour together, you know, maybe that's too reductive. I'm not trying to put you in a box like that. That that would be nice. I mean, I would like, I would like to tour more, do more, you know, but it's, Okay, so the situation is bands from like the 80s, 90s and early 2000s, they, you know, because of the way the industry was, they built up big followings. Mm-hmm. So newer bands like Black Needle Noise, are, you know, is a newer band. I don't have, even though, see, people know me as a producer, but they don't know me so much of writing music. So I don't have the fan base that these older bands have. So it's, it's easier for them to go on tour. All the tours I do, in you know, all playing live at the moment, I lose money on. So it's, it's difficult, you know, and, and all new, all new artists will tell you the same thing. It's like, yeah. you're, you know, it's, and a lot, and the disgusting thing is like pay to play situations, you know, yeah. Yeah. And I was, so this other agency contacted me and it's, and, and 
basically it was pay to play. But say, oh no, we're not pay to play. We give you tickets and you sell them and then you give us the money. And it's like, well, it's not pay to play. What? What? No, no, it's not pay to play. It's like, yeah. You know, and then, then after COVID, we got to see how many venues actually still exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Because I heard a lot of venues in LA are run, owned by Golden Voice and Live Nation. And apparently that, like, Fifty percent of them used to lose money anyway, and yeah. they won't reopen. Yeah, um, I'm curious. Where you've probably traveled all over the place. Where in the world is one of the big hotbeds for this kind of music? South America, funny enough. Really? Because yeah. we were supposed. So we were supposed to be down in Chile, playing the show shows down in Chile and some other South American countries. I mean, it's like in, in Mexico, you know, it's just massive down there, you know? Yeah. So, unfortunately, the, sh- the shows in Chile got postponed because of the political unrest. And then, uh, so three times we tried to book our shows down there. And every time we've done it, something has happened for it not to happen. Ugh, and, then, then COVID, and then COVID's came along. So, yeah. you know, hopefully we're going to go down next year. Yeah. Wow. Um, these well this entire year for the last six seven months every few days there's a new stumbling block in everyone's life isn't there well that's the thing it's uh with you know with covid it's no one really knows what's going to happen you know what you see you know across europe you know we were actually in spain in february playing with Mm -hmm. another artist called fakiba uh, which I wrote the music for her, and she sang over the top. She's from uh, Senegal, so she sings in Wolof, and that's a kind of a dark ambient dance album. Right. Yeah. So we, we went there and actually uh, played some shows there, and of course we came back here, and uh, you know, two weeks after we were back, like Spain was inundated with the virus, you know? so we were lucky to get out. Yeah. But out because they said it was just horrible there. Yeah. Yeah. The world is upside down right now. All right. There you have it. John Fryer. Interesting stuff. I love so much of that music. I figured we had to close it out with more Nine Inch Nails, don't we? Now, here's the deal. If you go to the website, that the link is in the description of the show right here. You'll find, you'll learn all of this as well. But The digital release comes out, as I mentioned, of these mortal covers, comes out tomorrow on the 27th of October. If you want a physical CD of this album, if you go to Black Needle Noise and you buy anything else that's on there, it will be included as a gift. You can't buy the CD directly, but if you buy something else from Black Needle Noise, this album, these mortal covers, will be included as a gift to you for that purchase. Does that make sense? And other good news, the new uh, new material, original material from Black Needle Noise is going to start coming out in December in line for the, in preparation for a new album of new material that we also talked about in here. That's going to be next year. Okay. Hope that's not too, too confusing for you. Stream, download, whatever, the digital version of these mortal covers starting tomorrow. If you want the physical copy, go on their website, buy something, and they'll give it to you as a gift. And get this. John wanted me to tell everybody that a lot of people are intimidated to work with him, but if you are a musician and you want John producing or engineering or mixing or even advising on your new music, 
Just reach out to him. He's very open to taking these kinds of requests. Isn't that awesome? So go to the Black Needle Noise webpage and just click contact and you can find him on there. Interesting stuff. Now, next week's guest is the frontman for another one of those kind of seminal American indie rock bands. He went on to do a lot of solo stuff too. But if you were paying attention, again, to college radio, like in the early 80s, uh, an, an American rock, indie rock band that would have popped up a lot is this guy's the front man of that. That's what's coming out next week. And in addition, later this week, we have a bonus episode coming out with another producer. It's kind of a lot like this conversation with John. The reason it's a bonus is because we primarily talk about a new project that he's working on that is so fascinating and so timely. I'm really excited for everyone to hear it. Plus, the music associated with this project is fantastic. So that's coming out later this week, okay? Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. Find us on Facebook. Like our page. Send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.